0: of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows' weekly cyber threat intelligence and information security podcast. My name is Chris, and I'll be hosting this week, and I'm joined by my colleagues stateside in Ivan and Austin. How are you both doing, chaps? Can you believe we're almost at the end of January? The so year's flying by, isn't it?
1: Hey, Chris. Yeah, man. It is uh, it is flying by. It's hard to believe.
2: We're getting there. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely flying by. I uh, can't believe it's already almost February.
0: That's mad. It's a bit mad. Um, So we have an interesting episode ahead of us today, touching on a a number of different threats that have surfaced in the last week. And of course, it's been a a really busy time for us in the world of CTI, with a, a number of external incidents having a demonstrable impact on the cyber threat landscape. And of course, I'm referring to events that are playing out in Eastern Europe with the developing situation On the uh, Russian and Ukrainian border, you know, really changing day by day and and the events that are taking place politically that are really coinciding with cyber activity that's being directed towards Ukraine and and also affecting surrounding regions. Um, So we will get onto Ukraine and Russia uh, later on, but I'd like to start the podcast talking about something a little different, and that's QR codes. I'm sure everybody listening has a, a good understanding of what QR codes are. Um, And, you know, these have really risen in prominence as the world has increasingly turned to touch-free or contactless payments. QR codes have been used to link the digital world with the the physical world. Um, And their use in everyday life has has really been accelerated by the the COVID pandemic. So QR has allowed restaurants to minimise interactions between customers and staff, which I guess in theory at least, you know, minimises the chances of, of viruses being passed on. Um, they've allowed people to check into venues or otherwise clarify their vaccination status. And with this interest in technology or increase in technology, rather, it's going to solicit interest from threat actors. We use anything as a lure if they'll think it, it can you know, legitimately trick a user. And in the past week, the, the FBI have released a public service announcement highlighting malicious QR codes that cyber criminals have used in order to steal users' financial information and credentials. So the responsible threat actors were reportedly tampering with QR codes to redirect victims to malicious sites in order to steal login and financial information, and in some cases, install malware onto victims' devices as well. So Ivan, I know this is a topic that you've looked into this week as part of our insum. So what were the main takeaways from the FBI's public service announcement?
2: Yeah, so like you said, the FBI, uh, they said that cybercriminals, they are tempering with QR codes. And a popular way that they're doing this is that they are taping a fake QR code on top of a legitimate one. So these codes will redirect the victims to websites hosting phishing pages. And uh, the FBI, they also said that the threat actors are using malicious QR codes to spread malware which could allow cybercriminals to access victims' uh, devices, allowing them to steal, let's say, the victims' locations or personal or financial information. And uh, the FBI also talked about another campaign related to QR codes back in November of 2021, uh, where they said that threat actors, they were conducting social engineering schemes like impersonation, romance schemes, lottery schemes. And then they would tell the victims to visit cryptocurrency ATMs and that she use a QR code to send the money to the threat actor.
0: Interesting you talk about kind of romance-related scams and things of that nature. You know, I guess with Valentine's Day approaching, you know, we'll see a little bit more of that sort of thing. Um, Is this um, an isolated threat or have threat actors previously been known to solicit QR codes in social engineering campaigns? You know, is this a trend that we need to continue to look out for in 2022?
2: Yeah, so these campaigns using QR codes have been happening for many, many years. It's not a new threat by any means. Uh, in fact, uh, these scams were really, really popular back in China in uh, early 2019. And uh, cybercriminals, they have been placing fake QR codes uh, on, let's say, on top of parking ticket machines and places where people would expect to see a real QR code, but then they put a fake one in there. And then uh, when victims go to pay using that QR code, the payment would go directly to the cybercriminal instead of, let's say, the city. Uh, So we also have seen nearly identical incidents in the U.S. back in uh, as recent as January of 2022 in Austin, uh, Texas. So this is definitely a trend that is likely to continue, and especially since QR codes have been widely adopted by many businesses. uh, Because like you said, it's a form of payment that is contact free. So it's very popular now with the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Sure. And I, I guess when I saw this, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, the reason this is going to be so prevalent is because it, it's, it's going to be quite difficult, isn't it, to, to spot what is a, a legitimate QR code and what's going to be a malicious QR code. Because, you know, in the eyes of the user, it's just a, a series of black and white patterns. You know, it's, it's very difficult to, to spot which is a fake one, and which is going to be real. So what can users do to identify whether a, a QR code is a legitimate one?
2: So it's actually very, very difficult to to differentiate between a QR code that is malicious, uh, since they are identical to the naked eye. However, there are a few steps that we can take to reduce the likelihood of attacks. And the first one is that users, they should be cautious of possible overlays on QR codes. So you should take a very good look at QR codes and make sure that nobody put anything on top of it. Uh, The second one is that you have to ensure that the websites that you visit when you're using QR codes uh, that they are legitimate. You gotta check the URL, make sure that there's no spelling mistakes, and make sure that there's nothing out of place on the website. And at, at the very last, uh, it's very important for users to install anti-malware software on their mobile devices because it provides an extra layer of protection against malware and other forms of attacks.
0: Good stuff. So a lot of those kind of you know basic indicators and warnings that you need to look for, you know, social engineering wise. You know, is there spelling mistakes on websites is there kind of urls that that don't look legitimate are there like branding errors you know these are the sorts of things that you need to look out for um, if you're being redirected to a qr code i guess you know a lot of these social engineering campaigns are, are going to kind of rely on a lot of those sort of you know similar techniques and a lot of the indicators and warnings that you would get from from other um, phishing or, or otherwise social engineering then you know they're going to be in the same manner, they're going to uh, give away what's a, a malicious campaign. So really interesting one, though. Um, I hadn't seen a great deal about QR codes and, and how they have been manipulated by threat actors. But that's definitely one to, to spot in the future. So um, I'll move on to a different threat. And interestingly, following our conversation on the last podcast we had a couple of weeks ago, there's been another report uh, that's been issued in the past week highlighting that ransomware groups are putting increasing effort towards recruiting insiders at targeted companies so insider threats is something that i don't believe um, companies place a, a huge amount of resource resources towards um, i get the impression that the general consensus is that companies think that their employees generally will be happy and if they're happy and productive they wouldn't do anything to, to harm that company um, but insider threats are real. and um, They do have a demonstrable impact, um, particularly if insiders have their, their heads turned by cyber criminal actors. So Austin, looking at the report we've seen in the last week, how are ransomware groups soliciting individuals for insider threat purposes and, and were they successful?
1: Yeah, according to this report, um, most cases the attackers were reaching out to employees through email or social media, and but there's actually about 20, 5% of the approach was through phone calls. But I think the biggest enticement was the money that they're offering. Um, it's like almost 30% of the offerings that were made by the attackers were, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of a hundred thousand to $500,000. But some of these offerings were even more than that, like exceeding a million dollars. Um, in most cases, they, uh, they weren't successful, but they didn't list any specific cases of, um, I think the report was mainly just focusing on how this threat has increased.
0: Yeah, I suppose they're not going to be uh, coming forward and and um, confirming exactly what payments were made or uh, how successful they were. But can you um, can you think of any circumstances of, of how the the risk from an insider threat you know might surface? And you know, is is it from disgruntled employees? Is it because of the allure of the the price that these groups are, are giving out? And and how if you're a, you know, your company worried about this, how would you actually stop them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because you know it's not really known, you know, what specific companies they're going after. You know, a lot of times opportunistic threat actors are like they already know about a vulnerability in a company, but it seems here that uh their key ingredient is finding someone that's willing to go along with their scheme. Um, so they're probably trying to identify someone that's disgruntled, maybe overstressed underpaid or even on the verge of quitting these are kind of the um key identifiers that they would be looking for in people um you know and that could be really premeditated if you if you have access to someone's social media you could get some kind of indicators into um you know maybe where their headspace is at but as far as what an insider threat could actually do you know it could be something as simple as plugging in a usb drive that could uh you know, infect an entire network with uh, ransomware, Um, they could provide an attacker with credentials. But let's say they got a hold of someone like a network administrator. Uh, This person could provide them insider information on network weak spots, or if they were really brazen, they could, you know, even reconfigure some network settings or something like that um, to open some vulnerabilities
0: to these attackers. There's a host of things you can do, is what you're saying. Yeah unfortunately <laughs> i'm i'm just thinking of um, what came up to mind for me was um, kind of joiners movers leavers uh, processors which you know really can assist with with sort of minimizing the threat from from insiders so if you have someone that's leaving your company um, you know the the best thing to do is to make sure all of their accounts are are turned off as as soon as, as, soon as they do leave so if they do have those you know, if they've been fired, for example, and they're, they're disgruntled and otherwise they want to cause damage, they can't use those accounts to actually log back in and, and start doing the things that you just mentioned there. Um, so that was the first thing that, that came to my mind. You know, joining move his, his, That's that's a really good way of, sort of minimizing the threat from insiders.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, someone that's, uh, you know, been fired or on the verge of leaving because of like some really nasty circumstances, uh, they may feel like they have nothing to lose. So that could be dangerous.
0: I remember in the, um, I think it was middle of last year and it was like really in the middle of like the, of the pandemic and everything that was going on. And we were talking about the risk from insiders and whether that would increase because of the amount of people who were having their jobs taken away from them. Um, perhaps they were having their working conditions changed. Other, other factors that they weren't happy with. And does that lead to a potential risk of, um, a, a potential increased risk from this type of threat? You know, I, I wonder if there's been a study done on, on exactly how you know what what did COVID do from a inside insider risk perspective, but um, yeah, uh, interesting to see how that one plays out. Um, and um, I guess we'll move on to the the last portion or last thing to uh, to discuss today on the podcast, and that's related to the the ongoing situation in Eastern Europe and how it's really coming to a, a boiling point um, following what appears to be an increasingly predictable path of of russia coinciding their cyber attacks into what could turn into a a military conflict we all hope that doesn't happen but it it could turn into a military conflict um you know we've seen this with you know georgia and the invasion of south Ossetia in 2008 we've seen it during the invasion and annexation of crimea in 2014 and also in 2017 with with i'm sure everyone remembers that one you know that came during Periods of increased fighting between Russia and, and Ukraine. And in the past two weeks, there's been a series of defacement attacks against Ukrainian government websites, uh, which coincided with a, a series of arrests made in Russia against members of the Rival gang. Um, and I know the, uh, the guys on last week's podcast, you know, really covered this one in detail. that almost appears to have be been time so that Russia could, you know, turn around and say, look, you know, we couldn't have done this because we're making efforts to, to clean up cybercrime. Um, and they, interestingly, they they also named the arrests as having been conducted following a request from the US, which is a really interesting aspect. And then just days later, there were several Wiper malware attacks conducted against Ukraine, um, also against government organizations, in which the attackers masqueraded as a, a ransomware gang that left no means of restoring the user's data, um, almost certainly done basically just to cause as much chaos and, you know, Damage to those targets as, as possible. And Microsoft have referred to these attacks as Whispergate, if you hear that term being mentioned uh, otherwise or um, in other circles. Um, so, the latest development in this uh, ongoing state of affairs relates to a series of hacktivist attacks on a Belarusian railway. So, Austin, could you explain what happened during these attacks and, and who actually carried them out?
1: Yeah, so basically, um, this is a group of Belarusian hacktivists. They refer to themselves as the cyber partisans. And they're claiming that they encrypted the servers, databases, and workstations of Belarusian railways with ransomware. And their goal was to slow down Russian troop movements in the region um, that are being moved closer to Ukraine, you know, as the tensions continue to mount. Um, And the group itself, they're made up of about 15 individuals, uh, they've reportedly fled Belarus, but they claim that they've had some insider help from Belarusian Belarusian security forces. That's
0: really to carry out this attack. Yeah. How do the um, attacks actually relate to the the ongoing events in in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, the, there's kind of a, a lot to unpack around there, just like based on the the history of the region um, and uh, what's happening right now, but you know the long and short of it like Belarus is a former Soviet republic and it's been an ally of Russia um it's controlled by uh, another dictator and Alexander Lukashenko so they've kind of had friendly ties with with Putin for a while so basically um you know Russia is staging its troops in in Belarus because Belarus is allowing them to and the idea behind this hacktivist attack was just to you know send a message that um these cyber partisans are against this escalation of tensions they're against the what they consider the occupation of uh, belarus by russian troops um so that's kind of the long and short of it
0: it's interesting isn't it so the the official party line is that obviously belarus is is very heavily tied to russia and they um they have a positive stance towards what russia is doing but the population you know they don't all to a t agree with what's happening and, and some of these partisans are conducting attacks you know to try and show their resistance to what is happening on the border with ukraine um and want to post to you both and yeah, this might be difficult because of how unpredictable everything is, has been in the last few weeks um i certainly look back to some of the predictions we made on uh, some of the calls we made at the end of 2021 and we got some of those wrong um but how do you anticipate this situation will develop from a cyber perspective?
1: So I, I think the cyber component is definitely going to be a, a major part, and I think you know one of the main reasons being that cyber warfare is a great way to press people's buttons without you know launching actual traditional armed conflict. Um, so you know, so it's good for I guess positive for that reason, um, but it's uh, you know it's it is unpredictable, like you said you know russia on on one hand is and the united states appear to be obviously they're at odds of what's happening but at the same time they appear to have a mutual interest in arresting um you know revel bringing revel ransomware groups and other ransomware groups to justice um but you know i think it's going to be um continue to be used uh like, like against government targets um and continue to be potentially used against infrastructure like we saw against the railway station. So I think there's a lot of different uh, ways that it can be used um, to, you know, just push people's buttons and, you know, maybe persuade the aggressor to get what they want.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree with you that defacement attacks are preferable to missiles being launched downrange, but uh, I kind of worry that this is the preemptive strike and we've seen so many times before that cyber attacks happen. And then, you know, the military action is not far behind. Ivan, any thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah. Like you said, it is one of those things where we we don't really know where we're going to go from here and uh, we could see retaliation in the cyber world or maybe even the physical one. Uh, It's very interesting that we're transitioning into this age where cyber warfare is becoming a very real and effective weapon that can be used for you know, uh, settling disputes between countries and you know, launching attacks. So that definitely something that we can expect in the future. And uh, yeah, interested to see where they go from here.
1: One so, other thing I would just add, just thinking back to 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, uh, there was two cyber attacks against their the energy grid, which like knocked out power to like 250,000 people. Um, so you may see some, you could see something like that Um that would be preemptive to something larger.
0: Yeah, sure, definitely one to look out for. Um, just to, to move away from the um, cyber attacks angle um, specifically, there's been, um, you were just mentioning about the, the Reval arrests and you know whether that would continue. Uh, there's actually been further arrests in Russia this week, um, this time related to the in-fraud organization hacking group, um, which is one I hadn't heard of to be fair. Um, that was also conducted by, um, I believe, the FSB. I'd have to go and check that. Um, but also they they mentioned the U.S. again um, as having some hand in this, or at least um, they referenced the U.S. authorities. So do you think that these law enforcement operations in Russia will continue at pace, or, or is this something that you know is, is going to be a flash in the pan? Because when I looked at the original reval arrest, I kind of thought, oh, well, this is just being done as a one-time thing, and that'll be it. But do you think there's going to be more law enforcement activity in Russia?
2: It's it's really difficult to say if Russia is trying to crack down on hackers, or maybe they're just trying to send a message and make it appear that they're doing something about it. Uh, like the crackdown of Revo was very interesting because they were no longer active by the time they were arrested. And then there's this new threat group that uh, a lot of us have not heard about. They're not a high-profile threat group. So it really begs the question, you know, what is, what is the purpose of these, are they actually trying to do something about it, or maybe are they? are just trying to make it seem like they're doing something.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it is tough to predict which way that's going. I think it's been kind of surprising to see these arrests, but it could be part of a larger tactic, like you said earlier. You know, on one hand, Russia is and uh, you know NATO are kind of at loggerheads. Um, And they're not seeing eye to eye, but Russia could be like, hey, look at all the good we're doing against ransomware and cyber attacks. Like we're being cooperative. So I don't know if that's part of their playbook, but um, it's anybody's guess what what's really going on in their head.
0: Yeah, the uh, the timing is absolutely impeccable, isn't it? You know, you have all this malicious cyber activity being directed towards Ukraine that's just coinciding with, you know, what would seem to be quite a progressive thing in, in them targeting cyber criminal groups and, and making arrests it, it just seems that the timing is uh is 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 too much of a coincidence but um i i will have to wait and see what happens um, like i say i i looked at the events in reval uh, against reval last week and i just thought well they'll just this is a one-time thing they're not going to go back and make further arrests but yeah maybe they'll just continue to do this and try and prove that point gain a leverage somewhere that was always the thought process I had is that they're trying to gain a leverage, you know, be it sanctions or, you know, otherwise, you know, to for their actions to be looked upon more favorably in, in Ukraine. We'll have to wait and see, I suppose. So thank you both for your, your contributions on on that particular uh, discussion. Um, that almost brings us to a close on the, the podcast today. I'll just take a couple of minutes to um, plug some blogs that we've released this week. So the first being um, a vulnerability intelligence Best practice blog that complements our vulnerability intelligence guide, um, both of which can be found on our website. And these solutions are being released in order to highlight the emerging use case that is vulnerability intelligence, which is really revolutionizing how organizations are approaching vulnerabilities and how gaining additional context and insights can really help move away from the obsolete, obsolete model of simply trying to patch everything or or just relying on CVSS scores and really focusing on on fixing what actually represents the greatest risk. Uh, We're also releasing a new feature on vulnerability intelligence within the Searchlight portal in the coming weeks. And these solution guides are, are really aimed at identifying how users can get the most out of this fantastic new product. The second blog, uh, released uh, i think a couple of days ago was by our russia team and that focused on a, a really interesting topic and that's speculating on what the future for these recent individuals that were arrested in russia may be and takes insight from various cyber criminal forum users so some seem to continue in the viewpoint that unless you've targeted russia or you know cis based comp- companies you'll be fine um, others are a little bit more pessimistic about their chances and you know it, it really explores what the differences between getting time in Russia versus getting time in the US might be, um, and, and many of the sentiments expressed by the um, the Cyber Criminal forum users appears to be that you'll likely receive a longer sentence in the US, but it, it you know possibly would be a more comfortable experience. Um, I'm not sure I'd, I'd fancy either one of those to be honest with you, but either way, a, a really interesting topic that I enjoyed reading. So so definitely check that one out. And that brings us to the end of the podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed our discussions and we'll see you again soon. Goodbye.